Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's talk about the pandemic we're still in. We can do that with Rick Bright, the Rockefeller Foundation Pandemic Prevention and Response Senior Vice President. Rick, great to have you with us on the program, sir. I want to start with how you're working with the current administration and the differences you're experiencing from working with the previous administration as well. What are you learning so far and what are the additional things you've been able to achieve? Well, thanks for having me this morning uh, and this afternoon around the world. It, it is really a, a stark difference between this administration and the last administration. It is no secret um, that I had my frustrations with the slow rollout of a overall response to the pandemic, and they just continue to increase my frustrations as we missed the ball on getting testing across our country, getting vaccines made and getting vaccine rollout. What we see now with the, the Biden administration is a complete 180 turnaround, a lot of communication with the state and local levels from the federal government, a lot of collaboration, transparency, and you're starting to see that payoff in dividends with the rollout of the vaccine. We have more than double of the, the vaccination rate now that we had on January 20th. We have uh, more people getting treated. We have more testing being done. And the passage of this American Rescue Plan is a true commitment to accelerating on all engines, all, all cylinders, to make sure we can end the pandemic. We struggled with testing in the United Kingdom, but seemed to do a much better job with sequencing and understanding variants much more quickly than other countries had done. That was in the UK, Rick. And I just wonder, in the United States, can we do a better job there? And in your experience, are we doing that right now? We absolutely have to do a better job. That is the big blind spot that we have right now with this pandemic in the United States and around the world. We haven't been doing enough sequencing. We haven't been targeting the sequencing to the right populations. What we're finding is these variants are now emerging and we're finding them in parts of the United States. And if you backtrack, we realized they were in the United States for two or four months. They're widespread before we even know they're here, they're upon us. We know the threat of these variants. We know that they can transmit more readily. We know that some of them can evade some of the vaccine immunity that we're seeing from the vaccines and the therapeutics. So we have to get in front of them. The United States hasn't been doing a good job. The CDC, however, did announce recently they would invest more in the sequencing for the United States. And really importantly, the Rockefeller Foundation has been working hand in hand with the US government to number one, um, come up with new testing strategies to use testing and screening of testing to reopen our schools. Number two, that that testing leads to identification of more cases. And then just a couple of weeks ago, Rockefeller Foundation hosted a, a conference with the government and, and, and private sector and public sector to identify the challenges we have in the United States to improve our sequencing. And not just the sequencing itself, but how we analyze it, how we communicate it, and how we tie it to the downstream, so, so what type of question. Every mutation isn't impactful, but we do need to know the ones that are, and we need to know 
where they are yeah. so we can get in front of them. Rick, there's one thing about analysis and identification. There's another thing about prevention. And this goes to this question of how international the effort of vaccination has to be. The idea that the United States is doing really well and is doing much, much better than Europe and a lot of the uh, most of the developing world. How much do you think the U.S. needs to do in order to get vaccines out to some of the less wealthy parts of the world in order to prevent some of these variants from being established, from frankly uh, mutating in the first place and gaining uh, a foothold? It sounds like you've been working on pandemic prevention for quite a while. So that's a critical <laughs> About point. About a year, actually. <laughs> it's, that's a critical point. And, and it's something that gets lost in the news, gets lost in the enthusiasm for increasing a vaccination rate in, in a wealthy country and a country that has vaccine production within the borders. And we can vaccinate everyone in the United States, but we are still extremely vulnerable to this virus until we vaccinate a sufficient level of people around the world. The virus likes to mutate, and it mutates in people mostly who haven't been vaccinated. That's what infects more readily. Yep. And if the virus mutates in its circles in some part of the world that's not covered with vaccines, and that virus circulates back into, into the United States and it's changed in some way, we can see reinfections, we can see escape from the immunity from our vaccine. So it's a real crisis. This pandemic will not end anywhere in the world until we end it everywhere in the world. And that's a critical part on the global picture for vaccinations. Rick, before we let you go, I want to finish on something really sensitive and quite important. I think one thing that's been lost over the last 12 months increasingly is trust. Trust in institutions and trust in officials as well. You've worked with both governments. I understand that you had worked with President Biden in the initial COVID task force. And as we know, you worked with the Trump government, the Trump administration as well. And when you quit, you said the following, that some of the decisions being made were dangerous, reckless and causing lives to be lost. And it was the interference of politics in science. And I think one thing people struggle with right now when they hear a policymaker speak, even the president of the United States currently, is it driven by politics or driven by science? When he says July 4th, we can get together again. Is that just about sending out a nice message to the public or is that driven by science? What I see the difference in President Biden and President Trump is their ability and willingness to listen to the scientists. And when President Biden now says that he can meet a target or meet a goal, you can bet that he's vetted it with the scientists. You can bet Dr. Fauci, the scientists at NIH and CDC and FDA and BARDA have weighed in on that goal. And when he sets the goal, I do think sometimes it's an ambitious goal, but we should be ambitious in stopping this pandemic. So I believe when he sets it out, we can achieve it but we're gonna to have to work really hard to get there. It's gonna take every one of us. It can't be a policymaker or just a government that achieves that goal. Each of us has a role. We have to wear our mask. We have to social distance. Yeah. We have to avoid crowds. Everything that we need to do that's been bringing down that curve, we need to keep doing it to take that curve all the way to the baseline while we accelerate our vaccination rates. That's how we'll achieve that goal of July 4th if we all work together. Rick, stay close. We'd love to work with you some more in the weeks and months ahead. Rick Bright there at the Rockefeller Foundation. joins us now, Wells Fargo Securities Equity Strategist. Anna, for some people, this story has got boring. We've been talking about it since the early part of November. We've just ripped in cyclicals, small caps outperforming, the Nasdaq struggling. We're seeing that again this morning. When do things start to change for you, Anna? 
Well, when we see how well a trade has performed, you know, the good news is it's working. The bad news becomes, well, that opportunity or the juice you saw has mostly been squeezed out. So for us, what we're looking forward to is maybe less so much of the value trade still on it, but we're starting to get interested in other parts of the market, other drivers. And for us, we think that next game in town could be earnings expectations. Let's talk about that. Where do you see the opportunity around earnings expectations as we get deeper into the year? Well, for us, it's playing a little bit more of that kind of mid-cycle, mid-recovery plays because the first early cycle stuff tends to have the early surge as you see, you know, growth prospects improve, as you see more confidence build of an economic recovery. The things that are most sensitive, kind of what's going to move first, a lot of that has occurred. So for us now becomes the things that come next. That comes with more reopening. So an example of that could be the aerospace industry and also the consumer services that have a lot to do with hotels, restaurants. You see these areas where people are going to be or looking forward to spending their money, especially now they have that additional stimulus check. So Anna, this story makes sense. And then you see GameStop, as John was talking about, the fourth biggest holding in the Russell 2000. And perhaps people will go buy more games at stores or AMC. Perhaps people will be going to theaters, but they've been affected by different stories as well. How much do you buy into the meme stocks, expecting some of the stimulus checks to feed into people's bank accounts and directly into Robinhood uh, versus fight against this and say the fundamentals do not justify this price action. Well, you know, it kind of reminds me of like the Keynesian beauty contest concept here where, you know, everyone is liking it. So must be good. Um, but something to keep in mind, too, is I think it's actually part of one big picture. As people have high savings rates, they have high real disposable income, then you're adding on top of that additional stimulus. Certainly some of that direct check is going to be used for bridging the gap. But another part of that is going to be used not just on experiences, going out, buying things for themselves, um, but also on taking a little more higher risk, playing it in the equity market. And keep in mind, what's really helpful for retail traders in the equity market is that, you know, the more sophisticated the investor is, you can use leverage product. Think about uh, the retail flow in options markets. You're able to use leverage products and get multiples of what you put in. So that could be an attractive risk reward for a lot of retail traders. And a leverage checks going into companies that are considered zombies or perhaps even insolvent by all other accounts. How much does what happens over the next couple of months determine the pain later on when people assess the longer term prospects for the economy? I think it's very important, Lisa. And you think about that, uh, you don't want to be putting money in zombie companies. You want to avoid those things. We call them value traps. Um, you know, they can really hurt you later on when you're just spraying and praying. But, you know, right now it looks like so far the financial system is pretty solid. Our banks are pretty solid. You're not seeing too much strain there um, when it comes to, you know, uh, you know, misappropriate cash to, you know, risky companies going under. So right now it's looking okay, but it's definitely a soft spot that you always got to keep an eye on. Anna, always great to catch up with you. Send our regards to Chris, won't you? Anna Han there, Wells Fargo Securities Equity Strategist on the Outlook over at Wells Fargo. Michael there. Holland joining us now, Holland & Company Chairman. Michael, we caught up with Abby Joseph-Cohen of Goldman Sachs earlier this week, and a question I asked her, I want to ask it of you as well. You have seen it all in your decades on Wall Street, and I think it would really be helpful for us if you could frame just how unique, truly unique, original this moment is as we throw everything at this recovery. Well, Jonathan, thank you. Uh, Abby Joseph-Cohen and I have been around 
Foster for about the same amount of time, which is forever. And the uh, reality is it's always different. Each time is different, so that's what keeps it interesting and keeps us humble. Uh, she actually, for all her success, is quite humble. I think this time around, what, what uh, she and I could, could observe is that we are in the early stages of a major recovery around the world. We were your word global from before. The earnings increases could easily surprise to the upside over the next 12 months. You talked about a 5.5% median figure for the U.S. That's probably way understated for the GDP growth over the next 12 months. And finally, and most importantly, is the uh, vaccine news in the U.S. is, uh, as, as you were pointing out just a few minutes ago, continues to surprise to the upside relative to the rest of the world, particularly Europe. The unknowable is, is uh, uh, rising rates. Uh, what will they do to stock valuations? And for listeners and viewers, if they didn't hear uh, earlier in the week, Sebastian Page, whom you had on uh, the show, uh, he pointed out uh, that the good numbers that over the last 20 years, when rates are rising, you're just as likely to get a stock market increase as opposed to a stock market decrease relative to P.E. So uh, that's the unknowable. Especially in the early part of the cycle, Michael. And to jump in, I think we've got to talk about the cycle and the additional unique part of this recovery is just how quickly things move. And Michael, I think we had a snapshot of that last year, and I just wonder what the lesson was for you. We can snap back really quickly from this pandemic. We had a little bit of a hint of that, a scent of that last year before things had to slow down again. The speed of the cycle, Michael, can you talk to that, the speed of the recovery that you're expecting? <laughs> That's the wonderful thing about the, the things that, as they change and, and experiencing new things every time in cycles, Jonathan. This time around, I expect uber, uber speed. I think the, I think the, uh, uh, the, the recovery by the 4th of July to use President Biden's uh, uh, goal line is, is uh, very likely to occur and maybe even, even sooner. We're, we're just getting such good news on the vaccine front in the U.S. And that's, I think that's uh, just one of, the, one of, if not the major key to, to what you just answered, because it's coming with, with uh, uh, pardon my phrase, warp speed. Well, you know, there, there's a really interesting conundrum here for investors that the uh, incredible boom that you're talking about is pretty well accepted and being accepted more and more every day. And yet how to translate that into investment thesis becomes more complicated. Your resume is basically a tutorial of fund management, whether it's the State Street uh, passively managed funds or whether it's a Blackstone's alternative asset management at the head of that. And Michael, I'm wondering from your perspective, how the best way to play this now, is this a time of active? management or do you still see a role of passive really coming to the fore based on the idea that lower yields means that lower fees is better and that frankly there still is that huge alpha and beta play together yeah i don't think it's a binary thing lisa i don't think it's active or passive um, i have evolved over the decades into both and um, i think they're perfectly appropriate places to use uh, passive i'm on the board down at Vanguard uh, for some stuff that they do. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that. But I think there are people and there are times when you can you can uh, appropriately say uh, something is really cheap and I would like to buy it, or uh, to the contrary, you know, it's way overvalued now and I'm going to sell it. So I've, I've been uh, fortunate enough to be able to do to, bo- to do both and have the freedom to do both. I think your, your comment about uh, the asset management business, the fund management business, is perfectly appropriate. We're, we're not we're not going to see any reversal of fee reduction over over time. I think that um, we're going to continue because it, 
it, it just doesn't make sense to be paying high fees for the sort of numbers that, that the majority of people have been receiving over the decades. So I think, I think uh, logic is, 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 uh, is in place. Well, so there's a conundrum here also, Michael, for the likes of pension funds or, for example, college endowments. And I know that you had experience with the Harvard College Fund. Looking at returns in the future, there need to be higher returns in the benchmark, uh, in, uh, benchmark yields would imply. And so a growing number of pensions and other institutions are going to the private markets, which charge higher fees. What would your recommendation be for a situation like that at a time of yields sub 2%? Well, you, you, you can't you can't uh, make a case for traditional fixed income uh, in, in the environment where people have uh, those kinds of required returns. The fact, that Lisa, your question is so well asked. It's being asked day after day uh, in, in the uh, endowment world. Uh, if, if you can't uh, see yourself to a four or five percent payout, what do you do? Well, you go out the risk spectrum. You go to private equity and you go to venture capital. But those those have been priced up. So I, I think at the very least. Uh, do a reality check if you're on the board of one of these things or you're managing one of these things. That it's possible we're going to have a period of time here where we're going to underperform what we would like to do. Uh, having said that, you, that doesn't mean you stop trying, but you try to you continue to work really hard to find the really smartest people in the world. And uh, if, unfortunately, they're usually discovered, uh, as Jonathan talked about earlier, warp speed uh, with technology and information. Uh, they get found pretty quickly, but yeah. The best people in the world have to have to be have to be used, and I think at the end of the day, I think the, the expectations have to be ratcheted down. Michael, you know I really respect and appreciate your experience, and it's fantastic always just to sit here and listen to everything you've got to say. Michael Holland, there, Holland and Company chairman. Blarina Rucci, uh, Barclays Senior U.S. Economist. Uh, Blarina, thank you so much for joining us here. I'd love to get your thoughts. I'm sure your clients are reaching out to you saying, talk to me about inflation. Where do I need to be concerned? Where do I need to look to see if inflation is creeping into this economy? What are you telling your clients? Uh, good morning, and thanks for having me today. That's a great question. Certainly, interest on inflation trends has increased a lot recently. I like to tell people that there is uh, there are two parts to this. There is an inflation narrative where people are very bullish inflation, and there is the actual realized inflation data and inflation trends. Uh, what we're seeing right now is inflation pressures, underlying price pressures in the economy, still being rather subdued and uh, quite low relative to the Fed's target. Uh, we're seeing pockets of the economy producing strong price pressures, particularly on the good side uh, of the economy. And this is where I tell people to look for rising price pressures and to pre prepare to see that in the realized data. And that makes sense to us. We have some supply uh, chain bottlenecks as more demand comes online for goods. Uh, we have some rising shipping costs globally and higher global commodity prices. We're seeing uh, increased price pressures from import prices, China PPI, US PPI. But what is lagging for the US is the services side of the economy. That's lagging in terms of demand and in terms of inflation. And the services side of the economy is a much bigger portion of U.S. demand and U.S. inflation. So until we see that rising, I don't think we need to be concerned about uh, a very strong spike in inflation pressures. 
Blarina, can you talk a little bit about the friction in bringing services back online in force? I'm thinking about this summer and the plans and people, you know, making their travel uh, arrangements right now at a time when you've got consumers receiving $1,400 checks every month for the next few months from the government, free money. How quickly can services come back based on the need to hire qualified people in mass uh, in such a short period of time? Yeah, that's a very good point. And, and what we need to highlight is that U.S. consumers have this cash, cash buffer that has been building up. There is no doubt about that. There is a lot of excess savings in the economy. The, one of the reasons why we're not seeing spending and employment in the services sector is that there isn't that confidence to come out and spend on services where you have to interact socially more. I think once we have critical mass in terms of vaccination and population immunity, this demand is likely going to come back. And so we expect that in the second half of the year, there's going to be some friction here where demand comes back, but supply has a little bit of trouble adjusting because it's going to be tight to hire as many workers as you need and businesses need to readjust to the new world. So this could bring some price pressures uh, in the services sector. And this is what we expect. We expect in the second half of the year, a shift from the goods sector to the services sector, both for demand and inflationary pressures. But for us, the key is, is this going to be a one-off transitory spike or a sustained one? And we are on the first camp. We think uh, as the economy opens up, we're going to see this spike that is going to be transitory, uh, but it's not going to lead to sustained uh, higher inflation in the U.S. Blairina, I'd love to get uh, your thoughts on kind of the employment environment. We had yesterday's jobless claims came in. They were, you know, the trend is better, but still at over 700,000 jobless claims, stubbornly, stubbornly high. And it points to, you know, perhaps some of those folks that have been unemployed for a longer period of time, suggesting that they may not be able to come back that easily into the workforce. How do you think about the employment environment in this country as we begin to reopen? Yes, right. We've made progress, and that's important to highlight. Going from double-digit unemployment rates uh, late last year, uh, early last year, uh, to where we are now, which is uh, well into the single digits. But as you said, there needs to be more progress to be made, and the challenges for me are around. Employment, again, going back to the services sector, we know that some pockets of the labor market have been hardest hit, like hospitality uh, and travel. And those workers need to come back online. Uh, What we're seeing is also a rise in long-term unemployment and also a decline in the labor force participation rate. Those workers that are discouraged by high unemployment rates and are not even looking for a job, these are the groups of people that we need to bring back in the labor force. Uh, What happens to the labor market, in our view, is that employment will actually continue rising and will probably go to pre-pandemic levels of employment in 2022. But at the same time, we think that some of the, we're actually optimistic that some of the long-term unemployed workers will come back 
and find jobs, but also some of the people that are discouraged now will come back in the labor force. So we have a cyclical rebound in the labor force participation rate happening next year. So this is going to make subsequent unemployment rate numbers look a little bit sluggish because the unemployment rate will start declining more slowly. But in our view, this is going to be a good thing. And it could actually lead to inflation because some of that slack uh, could be beaten out of the market. I do want to have a Bloomberg surveillance correction. I said $1,400 uh, for, for many months. It's a one-time payment for now, but it goes exactly where I want to go, Blarina, this idea that there's growing discussions among Democrats in particular about uh, income assistance, basically uh, checks sent to people who are permanently unemployed for a prolonged period of time. Do you see an argument for that in the successes that evidently helicopter money have had in spurring growth uh, throughout the pandemic? So the way I I think about it is, is this unemployment insurance um, protection, this extra payment, they're lasting until September. And the the checks are one-off checks. So I think they're filling a gap that we have in the economy right now because of the high unemployment rate and the damage done by this recession. Uh, once they come off um, and, and consumers don't get these payments anymore, I don't think they will pose a risk to the recovery and a risk to inflation in, in the quarters after September. So I'm not too worried about this narrative that we're pe- giving people too much money and that's going to lead to higher inflation on a sustained basis. This is the key to me. What is going to keep inflation higher over the medium term? And I think for that to happen, we actually need some of the structural issues that have been keeping inflation lower until now to change. And that is a de-anchoring of inflation expectations, a loss in Fed credibility, and a change in the way uh, labor bargaining works so we get faster wage growth. Blamarina, what's the Barclays uh, U.S. GDP forecast for this year and next? So we expect Quite a robust and snappy recovery this year. Annual growth in 2021 is about six and a half based on uh, Barclays forecast. And, and next year, we're looking at about 4% annual growth. Florina uh, Rucci, thank you so much for being with us. Florina Rucci, Barclays senior U.S. economist, talking about the key aspects of inflation and employment. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.